take you on over. The rest of you open up to Deuteronomy chapter 1. And let me read Deuteronomy chapter 1, by the way. It's on page 171 in the Pew Bible. Page 171, if you're using a Pew Bible. And let me read verses 6 to 18 of chapter 1, which is our text this morning. The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighboring peoples in the Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev, and along the coast, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore He would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. At that time I said to you, You are too heavy a burden for me to carry alone. The Lord your God has increased your number so that today you are as many as the stars in the sky. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousand times and bless you as he promised. But how can I bear your problems and your burdens and your disputes all by myself? Choose some wise, understanding and respected men from each of your tribes and I will set them over you. You answered me, what you propose to do is good. So... I took the leading men of your tribes, wise and respected men, and appointed them to have authority over you as commanders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens, and as tribal officials. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the disputes between your brothers and judge fairly, whether the case is between two brother Israelites or between one of them and an alien. Do not show partiality in judging. Hear both small and great alike. Do not be afraid of any man for judgment belongs to God. Bring me any case that is hard for you, and I will hear it. And at that time, I told you everything you were to do. Leadership is a gift from God. Authority is a life-giving force in the church and among God's people. Hierarchy is necessary for our happiness and our holiness. How's that for some countercultural ideas? That hierarchy is actually good and it's for a blessing in our lives. God has given us, among many things and all the blessings He's given us, He's given us leadership as part of those blessings. This morning we're continuing our study in Deuteronomy and uh, the last two Sundays I've been introducing this book and we've seen that Deuteronomy is a sermon preached by Moses to the Israelites when they were ready to go into the promised land. And we saw uh, last Sunday that the content of the sermon, what Deuteronomy is about, is it's about the covenant relationship between God and Israel. That what we have in Deuteronomy is the reiteration of a covenant between God and His people so that He became their God and they became His people. And Deuteronomy rehearses that and, and reinstitutes that among the Israelites as they're ready to enter the promised land. Now, if you heard last Sunday, we kind of looked at this interesting historical tidbit that, that in the ancient world at the time of Deuteronomy, around 1400 B.C., uh, there were these treaties, these covenants that nations would make with one another. Archaeologists have uncovered these treaties. 
Uh, they were called suzerain covenant treaties. Do you guys remember this from last Sunday? It, just by way of review, if you take out your sermon notes, this insert in your bulletin <clears throat> has a map of the Exodus on the front. And you look in the inside where it says Deuteronomy is covenant document. Last Sunday we talked about how in the ancient world these covenant treaties uh, had a certain structure to them. So, so in the ancient world, if there was a big king who wanted to enter an alliance with a small king, they would form one of these suzerain covenant treaties. The suzerain was the big king, the overlord, and the little king was the vassal. Then they would make an agreement. And these were the elements of the agreement. There was a preamble. <clears throat> there was a historic prologue. There were the rules of the agreement, the general stipulations, specific stipulations. There were comments in it about the deposition of the documents of the treaty. The blessings and curses. Blessings if they kept the treaty, curses if they didn't keep the treaty, and so on and so forth. And what's interesting is, this is a historically interesting thing, is that as archaeologists began to discover these covenant treaties, biblical scholars then took them and said, hey, wait a minute, this looks like Deuteronomy. And, and, and they found out that Deuteronomy actually is, is in the form of an ancient covenant treaty. So it's as if God is saying, I'm the suzerain, I'm the big king, I've rescued you from Egypt, and now I'm bringing you into a relationship with me as my people Israel. And, and so God is communicating his relationship with them through the forms and the thought patterns of their historical context through this covenant treaty. It's really cool. And so here's God. He's the king. And he's reiterating his relationship with Israel in Deuteronomy. Now, what's interesting about this sort of structure is, again, you can see there where the different chapters of Deuteronomy line up pretty closely to this ancient treaty form. And that's important for us today because we're in the historical prologue of the book of Deuteronomy. We're getting into that phase of it. So what's the historical prologue? Why is that important? Well, the historical prologue, when, when, when these covenants were made, before they got into the rules of the covenant, the, the big king would start off by saying, let's go down a walk in memory lane, memory lane and let me remind you of all the ways I've been good to you in the past. Let's go back and I'm going to show you how I've been faithful to you as a king in, in different ways and in different situations. And so as God is communicating his commitment to Israel and using this structure, he, he also has a historic prologue. So starting in chapter 1, verse 6, and going all the way through chapter 4, chapter 4 is kind of a hinge into the next section, you have this, you have this reiteration of all God's blessings. God's like, hey Israel, let's go back and let me remind you of what a faithful God I've been to you. I've been good to you. I've provided everything you've needed up to today. Look, look at the history of my love and my faithfulness to you as a people. And so that's what we're going to have for the next several Sundays. It's going to be a kind of count your blessings little mini-series here as we think about all the blessings God gave Israel and then all the blessings He gives us, all the way He's been faithful to us as His people today at the church. And the first blessing he, he's going to show us today, the one we're going to focus on this morning in verses 9 to 18, is the blessing of leadership. That leadership is a blessing. That authority is a life-giving reality in the church. That hierarchy is necessary for our, our holiness and our happiness as God's people. Look at verse 9 in Deuteronomy. So we're going back down memory lane. Moses is reminding the people of all the things God's done. And the first was the need for leadership. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 9, it says, At that time, Moses says, I said to you, you are too heavy a burden for me to carry alone. 
The Lord your God has increased your number so that today you're as many as the stars in the sky. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousand times and bless you. Moses is like, we've got a good problem here. We've got a lot, of, a lot of Israelites. That's a good thing. In fact, God promised Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants like the stars in the sky. And guess what? Now you're there. God is fulfilling his promises. And you know what? I hope God even makes more of you Israelites. But the problem is, I'm stressed out. I, I can't lead you all. You know, you had Moses in this incredible position where Moses leads all the Israelites out of Egypt, tens and hundreds of thousands of them, leads them into the desert. They get the Ten Commandments. They, they get the, the law. Now they're God's people. And it's like, now what? How do they organize themselves? What do they do? You know, human societies always need organization. Anytime people get together, there's got to be some agreed upon structure. It doesn't necessarily have to be a Western structure, an American structure. There's lots of different cultures, lots of different ways of organizing people, but people need organization. The, the uh, utopia painted by anarchists and, you know, hyper, hyper libertarians is just, it's an illusion. People can't live without structure. It just doesn't work. We need to be organized. And so here are the people coming to Moses. I mean, you know, what's their structure? Right now it's Moses is the guy who does the miracles and hears from God. And then there's hundreds of thousands of Israelites looking to him. It's just not going to work. They're going to become exhausted. It's, it's a faulty uh, system. There's not enough manpower. And so Moses was saying, look, I, I don't have the bandwidth to deal with all you people. I'm tired. This is too big of a burden. There's too many people. Um, let me take you back to the original story, because remember, this is a recollection of the past. Put a bookmark here and go back to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 18. Let's go back to the original story when this first happened. It's on page uh, 72 in the Pew Bible. Exodus chapter 18. Here's the original story. It's kind of cool that the original story has a little more detail in it. Because it involves Moses' father-in-law, so there's some kind of funny family dynamic things taking place. But if you look at uh, Exodus chapter 18, verses 7 and 8, here's the story. So Moses' father-in-law comes to visit him in the desert. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake. And about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. So Moses is like, let me tell you all the good things God's done to bring us here. But then here's the interesting thing. Look what happens the next day. Look at verse 13. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. And they stood around him from morning till evening. And when his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, because the people come to me to see God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you're doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Look, this is a lose-lose, Moses. You're getting fried. That's the original Hebrew. You're getting fried. And, and the people are unhappy because you're not able to meet all their needs. And so everybody's getting frustrated. Everybody's, you know, getting angry. This is not working for anybody, Moses. You need to do something different. 
Have you ever been in a situation where there's been a lack of leadership? Where leadership is needed, where there needs to be somebody pulling things together and it's not happening. It's so frustrating. It's like, will somebody stand up and help us by taking charge? You know, maybe you've been in a classroom where uh, you were a teacher and you just had way too many students. And you're thinking, if I could just get a, a teaching assistant here. If just one parent would volunteer to come in and be crowd control. Anything. I need some help in this classroom. I need more leadership. Uh, maybe you've been in a company where, um, you, you know, there's a downsizing or something and you suddenly find yourself doing the job of five people and you have so many direct reports underneath you. And you're thinking, I can't effectively lead all of these direct reports. I need other leaders to help me lead people so that we can manage this work. It's just too much for me. I'm not doing a good job managing the people. The people I'm managing are getting frustrated. And so everyone's getting frustrated. There's a vacuum of leadership. Leadership's a real gift. It's something that's needed among people and especially among God's people. I, uh, I'm on this uh, monthly conference call that I do with, with a bunch of pastors from all over the country. And and it's really fun. All these pastors, we live, we live all over the country, but we all share sort of a common philosophy of ministry. We all have sort of a, a reformed understanding of ministry in the church. And so um, we, we call once a month for an hour, and some, a couple of people will just bring some issues to the table, and we'll all kind of encourage each other and sort of share knowledge. It's, it's a really great conversation. Anyway, this, this brother called um, this last week, and we were talking, and he's a new pastor in a new church, about 700 people in the church, he said. And he's the only pastor on the staff and doesn't have any elders who work with him at all. It's just him. And so he's like, you know, I need some time management strategies because I, I need to manage my time better. He says, I, I don't know how to fit in all my sermon preparation plus following up with the new visitors plus uh, the pastoral counseling plus all the visitation, the home visitation. And he goes, I, I don't know how he goes, how do I manage my schedule to fit all that in? And we're like, brother, you don't need time management. You need some help. You know? The problem isn't trying to fit, you know, 10 pounds in a 5-pound bag more efficiently. Like, you need some other shepherds. The solution for lots of sheep is more shepherds. And so we told him, look, there has got to be, in a church of 700 people, a few qualified men to be elders. Like, you need to get some, you know, biblical structure of other shepherd leaders with you to help lead that church. And, And so... Leadership is needed here in this situation. So that's what, you know, if you go back now to Deuteronomy, that's the situation there, is that leadership was needed. And, uh, and so that was a solution. That's what Jethro's father-in-law came up with. Actually, I'm sorry. Go back to Exodus. We're not quite finished there. Sorry to yo-yo you around here. Go to Exodus chapter 18, verse 19. Here's the solution. More leaders needed. Moses' father-in-law says, listen now to me and I will give you some advice. Kind of love that sort of father-in-law moment. Uh, I'm going to tell you something, son, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God. Bring their disputes to Him. Teach them decrees and laws. Show them the way to live and the duties they are to perform. So yeah, you you have your role. You're a leader. You're supposed to teach. You've got to do your thing. But, verse 21, select capable men from all the people. Not just anybody, but men who, look at that, fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. So Moses is kind of like the Supreme Court. If no one else can figure it out, it goes to Moses. Otherwise, you guys sort it out. 
the simple cases they can decide for themselves, that will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you'll be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. So you'll win and they'll win. Everyone will be happy. And that's what happened. Verse 24, Moses listened to his father-in-law. He did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel, made them leaders of the people, officials, over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And they served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses and the simple ones they decided themselves. So now when you go back to Deuteronomy, now go back to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1 is the Reader's Digest version of that Exodus 18 story. It's the condensed summary of what happened there. And so that's what Moses says. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 13. Choose some wise, understanding, and respected men from each of your tribes, and I will set them over you. And you answered me, what you propose to do is good. So I took the leading men of your tribes, wise and respected men, and appointed them to have authority over you as commanders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, of tens, and as tribal officials. God is faithful. He provides all of our needs. And one of the things we need as his people is leadership. We need authority. We need hierarchy. <laughs> No, we need somebody to have some say and some people to follow that person in some way in order for us to function together as a body and to be effective. And so in, in Moses' day, it was a huge amount of people. And so it was a, a very large structure that was needed. But there it is. And I can't help but look at Deuteronomy and think about the church, uh, the new covenant people of God. God gave leaders to the old covenant people, Israel, and God's given leaders to the new Israel, the new covenant, the church. And, and he's appointed us the same thing. You know, when you look in the New Testament, you, you find actually a similar story in the book of Acts, chapter 6, where the church was growing, the church was expanding. It was, the church was started and went from 120 disciples in an upper room to 3,000 people, the first megachurch in the Bible. Suddenly, the 12 apostles in charge of 3,000 people. And with 3,000 people, there's a need for structure, organization, coordination, administration. And they said, we can't do it all. Um, if you look at your, uh, looking in your sermon notes, look underneath the Deuteronomy as covenant document. There's a paragraph underneath that from Acts chapter 6. Here's the story. You may be familiar with it. So this is in the early days of the church. It says, in those days when the numbers of disciples was increasing... The Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So they had administrative problems. They had people problems. You get 3,000 people living together in a community, you're going to have problems. You're going to need leadership. You're going to have disputes. And so that's what was happening. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, so they kind of sound like Moses here. I can't do it all. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Is there anything inferior about waiting on tables no it's just we can't do it all and so we're called to minister the word we need someone to do that so what was the solution more leaders brothers choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom we will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word then i love it this proposal pleased the whole group once again the people said good idea so they chose and they get the list of the the first, uh, the first list of kind of deacons in the church. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Proctorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. And then I love this. Look at that key word, so. In other words, 
As a result, as a consequence, because leadership was put in place, what resulted? The word of God spread. The church was able to function and flourish because it was organized well. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. We don't have the apostles today. We have their writings, but we don't have them. We don't have the seven today. But, but later on in the New Testament, basically the apostles and the seven are replicated in local churches. They're called elders and deacons. Elders are the people that God calls in a local congregation to be like the apostles, to pray, to preach the word, to be responsible for the spiritual shepherding of the whole flock. Uh, deacons are like the seven. Their job in the local church is to serve. The word deacon means servant. So a deacon is a servant. And so the, the deacons are there to, to meet those needs, to provide leadership and spiritual care through meeting the sort of the administrative and organizational needs in the church. And, and that's what we have in our church today. We have elders who lead the church, who pray, who teach, who provide spiritual direction. And we have deacons who, you, you, know, they, you know, who sets this table? Who organizes baptisms? We have a benevolence fund. The deacons do that. Uh, we have a third type of leadership in our church, which, frankly, I cannot find in the Bible. It's called committees. <laughs> I think we need to get rid of committees in our church. And I think we need to replace them with deacons. Because most of the committees are really deacons. You think about the stewardship committee. They're the guys who take care of the buildings and grounds and make sure this gets in place, you know, for Sunday or whatever needs to be done with the building. But they're really being deacons. They're serving the administrative needs of the church. I just think we should call them by their proper title. The, the, The head usher is a deacon, really. They're helping care for all of us so that we can worship, and they're making sure a lot of those details get in place. They're serving us. It's a ministry of leadership through serving. Uh, we have a guy who heads up our sound ministry. His name's Harry. He's an awesome, godly guy. I think he should be a deacon because he's, he's doing de- diaconal kind of work. So, so uh, anyway, that, that's kind of a rabbit trail. I'm, I'm getting down. I don't want to get too far into that. But, but you know, God has given us a structure for the church. Why, why wouldn't we follow it? God provides leadership. And I'm just so thankful for all the leaders in this church. I, I'm thankful that I don't find myself in a position like Moses or like my pastor friend who says, I'm one guy with 700. I don't know what to do. God's given leaders to this church. I just want to say, let's count that blessing. Not only the offices of leadership, but God's given us godly people to fill those offices. And, and you know what? We need more. <laughs> it's amazing. As the church grows, one of our biggest needs is not just a building. It's more leaders, more godly, capable leaders. And so we pray that God will raise them up in all different areas in the congregation. Now, this view of leadership that I'm articulating, that leadership, hierarchy, authority is a positive thing, stands in shocking contrast to our culture's view of leadership and authority. In our culture today, there is very much a pendulum swing the other way that holds leadership and authority in suspicion. People are skeptical. Uh, because today we worship at the altar of self. It's all about me. It's all about my needs. It's all about personal autonomy and freedom. And I think people today have a tendency to see a, a dichotomy between authority and freedom, between hierarchy and happiness, as if those two things cannot exist together. And, and we see them as opposed to each other, as opposed to complementary in God's plan. 
Uh, and so today, you know, people just, you know, they're not sure about leadership. Um, you know, you, you think, about how, think about how leadership and authority is portrayed in television and movies. It's almost always negative. It's almost always oppressive. At best, it's just stupid. You know, you think about the TV show The Office. I don't know if you've ever seen this TV show. This sort of crazy comedy about this office place. And the buffoon at the center of it is the manager. You know, he is a total buffoon. He's completely incompetent. And that's the view. Well, you know, leadership at best is incompetent and silly and doesn't really know anything. But at worst, you know, and in some of its darker portrayals, leadership is sinister, it's abusive, it's destructive, uh, it's a negative kind of thing. Now, map that onto the church. Map that onto spiritual things. And, and you get this phrase today. And we've talked about this before. I'm sure you've heard it. I've heard it. I'm, I'm very spiritual, people will say, but I'm not into organized religion. You guys heard that phrase? Organized religion, bad. Spirituality, good. And I want to suggest, what if it's the opposite? What if making up your own religion is dumb, (laughs) is bad, is delusional, to say, I'm going to create my own belief system that fits my needs? How can you do that? You You can't make God up out of your head. And I'm going to say, maybe organized religion is good if the organizer is God himself. That's the key. But if God has said this is how you're to be saved through faith in Christ, and God has said once you're saved through faith in Christ, you become part of His people, and that His people then gather in local churches, and His local churches for our good are supposed to have elders and deacons, and He's given us some organization, why do I think that's worse somehow than, than my own made-up belief system? You know, so next time someone says that, say, oh, no, spirituality, I would never do that. I'm into organized religion. You know, people will go like, what? You know, and... That'll be a conversation starter anyway. Um, to, you know, get the ball rolling. Yeah, but God, God's given us that. Does God tell us everything that we're supposed to do in a church? Of course not. There's lots of room for differences. That's why there's different kinds of congregations. The Bible doesn't tell us whether we have to sit in pews or on theater seats or on logs or on the ground. I mean, there's, you know, there's some things that are kind of indifferent matters. But, but I guess I'm just asking the question, if God has told us how we're to be as his people, how to be organized, then why wouldn't we... Try it. Why wouldn't we do it? Why wouldn't we let his church be led the way he's calling us to lead it? And so leadership is a gift. Like the rain that comes down from heaven, like the sunshine from, from God's gracious hand, like friendship, like food, like, like uh, jobs, like family, like laughter. It's a gift that God has given us. Authority and leadership and even hierarchy can be a gift. God has placed parents in the lives of children for a reason. God has placed husbands in marriages to be the head and leader of the family for a reason. God has given elders and deacons for a reason. And so a question I've asked you is, where is God calling you to lead? I bet there's some area where God's called you to take initiative. And, and really what I mean by leadership is just very simple. The, the person who stands up and says to everyone else, hey, we need to go that way because that's the right way to go. And people say, you know what, I'll follow that. That is the right way to go. Um, leaders don't have to have all the answers. They don't have to have all the solutions. But they need to point people in the right direction. And so maybe you're a mom who's leading your children. Maybe you have people under you at work. Maybe you're a principal or a teacher. Or maybe you lead a Bible study or a husband. We need to be, wherever our little sphere of leadership is that God's entrusted to us, 
let's, let's see it as such a wonderful opportunity to be a life-giving blessing of God in the lives of those that he's given to us because it's a gift from him. But having said all that, recognizing that leadership is a gift, I also know that there is there has to be a lurking objection out there because I have the same lurking objection in my own heart, even as I insist on all these things. And that lurking objection is, but pastor, what about the dangers of leadership, authority, and hierarchy? What about ungodly leadership? What about all the examples we could rattle off of when leadership actually becomes destructive, oppressive, harmful? Okay, you know, husbands have leadership in their homes. What about abusive husbands? You know, what about neglectful parents? You know, what about parents who have authority, but, but they're alcoholics and they, they're just, they do terrible things in their family that hurt people? What about, you know, pastors and, and people in churches who get on power trips and oppress and control and become manipulative? What about government leaders in some places who become violent and murderous? They become tyrants and oppressors. You know, what about that side of leadership? You know, where does that fit in? Maybe you're thinking, you know, if you knew my background and you knew where I'm from today, you would be amazed that I'm even sitting in a church. Because some of the things I've been through in a church, all all at the hands of people who claim to be godly shepherds, but turned out to hurt the sheep. You know, what about that side of the leadership equation? And, And how does that fit into this? And it's a question I have myself as I'm reading this and was thinking about God's authority. I'm like, but I've experienced in my own life misuse of authority and, and the, the, the harmfulness that misused hierarchy can cause in life. So, so what about that? Well, I, I don't have the whole solution to that. Let me just make three quick observations or suggestions from the text. Two from this passage in Deuteronomy and then one just kind of a general biblical observation. And the first one is this. Number one. Be very careful who you put in positions of authority. Be very careful. Look what Moses says in Deuteronomy 1.13. Choose some warm bodies to fill these slots. No. Choose some wise, understanding, and respected men. Verse 15. I took the leading men of your tribes, wise and respected. Acts chapter 6. Find men who are known to be wise and full of the Holy Spirit. First Timothy chapter 3 gives the qualification list for elders and for deacons. And if you go back and read those lists, almost all of the qualifications have to do with character. There's very little in there about actual leadership ability. I mean, you know, elders have to be able to teach and manage their own families well. But beyond that, it doesn't say, and you must have you know, grown a company from this much money to this much money and proven yourself and taken this leadership course you know, hopefully leaders in the church are both godly and competent and really skilled at it. But if I have to choose between godly and competent, just give me godly. <laughs> you know, like I'll struggle through the incompetent and we can get there. We can maybe improve some of that. But give me godly. Don't give me someone who's a really strong leader, but is corrupt character. I want somebody who reflects the character of Christ. And so it's very important that we choose those leaders. And it's very important that that the church holds leaders accountable. I think that's the other side of the equation. I believe very much in elder leadership of churches, but I also believe in congregationalism. That's why I'm in a Baptist church. I think congregationalism is biblical. I, I don't believe in you know 
bishops and archbishops and popes. That's not in the Bible. Okay? What's in the Bible are elders leading churches and a congregation responding to and holding that leadership accountable. And so, so that's part of what your responsibility as a congregation is when people are put into places of leadership to make sure they're the right people. And if anyone goes off track, that's where the congregation has to say, wait a minute, time out. We've got to come back to God's word here. And, and I said this in the first service, but I'll, I'll say it again. If any of us pastors or elders, if we get off into some weird false doctrine or, or we compromise our leadership through some moral failure, Regardless of how much you may like us, please get rid of us. You know, Take the appropriate measures to remove toxic leadership from a church and keep godly people in a church, leading a church, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of God's glory. Number two, so number one, make sure you get the right people in place. Number two, there's a word for leaders here. If you are a leader of a small group, of a family, maybe you're an elder, maybe whatever you are, wherever you lead, Notice the importance of being godly in your leadership. Verse 16, I charge your judges at that time, hear the disputes between your brothers and judge, keyword fairly. The Hebrew word is righteously. Whether the case is between two uh, brother Israelites or between one of them and an alien, doesn't matter. Do not show partiality in judging. Hear both small and great alike. And I love this. Do not be afraid of any man, for judgment belongs to God. That last little phrase, for judgment belongs to God, I think it's both an encouragement and a warning. Because if we don't judge impartially, if we do abuse power, we have to answer to God. That's a terrifying prospect if you want to be a leader. Is that God is the ultimate judge. In the final analysis, no human being has absolute authority. All human authority is delegated from God. All human authority is relative, it is limited, and it's accountable. Only God has absolute authority. And so even if you have you know, great authority in, in a position of great influence, you have to recognize that you're still just a servant of God in that position. And, and so that mindset should sort of temper us and guide us and guard us in, in whatever leadership role you find yourself. And then the third observation is this to that question about what about destructive leadership. One, keep the right people in place. Number two, leaders be godly. And then the third one is, is just this recognition. This is sort of more a biblical observation from the whole story of Scripture. is that no matter who it is, leaders will fail you to some degree because we live in a sinful and broken world. There's just no way around it. No matter who it is, even the best captain, even the best you know, senator, even the best pastor, even the best parent fails because we're sinful and broken people. Even if they're a grassroots Tea Party candidate, they're going to fail you. They're going to fail you. Some way or another. Don't put your hope in men and women. And, and, and so ultimately, even with all of this stuff about appreciating leadership, there's another side of us that has to say we live in a sinful and broken world and we should not be surprised or completely thrown off balance when we see leaders fail, even good leaders, even the best of the best, we're, we're sinners. Isn't that the story of the Bible? Abraham, failures. Moses doesn't get to enter the promised land, failure. King David, <laughs> that was bad. You know, all these different things that each of these leaders have done. And so leader after leader just increases the intensity within the Old Testament of us asking, is there anyone who will get it right? Is there anybody out there 
who can lead us effectively. And it's not only looking at leaders in our lives or leaders in the Bible. It's looking at ourselves. When I look in the mirror as a leader, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, I say, wow, I fall short. If we're really honest, we'll see the problem isn't just with all those bad people out there. It's right here. I failed to be courageous when I needed to be courageous. I failed to take initiative when I should have taken initiative. I've not always loved the people I'm leading. I mean, that's key for a leader. You've got to love the people you're leading. And, and I haven't always loved. I'm selfish, you know. And I just say, I'm not, I haven't been the father that I need to be. My children are going to have things to talk about when they're adults. <laughs> as hard as I've tried. They're going to have, you know, issues for therapists. Thanks to me. And it's thanks to me. You know, I, I just have not been the guy on the cake, of the wedding cake, you know, standing next to the bride. I haven't been that guy, that perfect guy. I haven't been the husband that I need to be. Even though I've been trying to be the best husband, I failed as a leader. I have not been the pastor that this church really needs. I've done my best, but, I, you know, I have holes in my character and in my leadership. And so I even look at myself and I say, where's the leader that we need? Is there anywhere on planet Earth a good shepherd? And there's only one. And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only leader. And so I think even the the failures we experience in leadership just push us back toward Christ. Because we say, that's what we've been looking for. He always did the will of the Father. He was always on with God. He never deviated. He always was impartial. He he would receive to salvation a Pharisee or a prostitute. If they repented and came to Him, He would save them. He, He met with everybody. He talked to everybody. And He loved His sheep like nobody has ever loved His sheep. Jesus said, I am the Good Shepherd. And how did He prove it? The Good Shepherd does what? He lays down His life for the sheep. And so God's love for us was demonstrated. Jesus' superior leadership and authority was demonstrated when He who was the King became the servant and He died on a cross. And so it's because of His selfless leadership that I can be forgiven. I can be saved. I can be one of His people. So the problem of bad leadership will tend to have one of two consequences over time. I believe it will either propel us away from God as we become more cynical, more jaded, more skeptical, more politicized in negative ways. And we'll say, you know, that's institutionalized religion. That's all that bad stuff. I'm just going to sort of retreat into the little bubble of my spirituality where I'm safe, where, you know, no one will fail me uh, except yourself. (laughs) You know, but you think I'm safe. I'll get away from all this bad stuff. You can't. You either go away from God or the other thing it'll do is in a strange way it will actually push us toward Christ because we'll say there is no answer. There is nothing in this world. There is no ideology that has all the answers. I don't need an ideology. I don't need a political stance. I need a Savior. And it will push us toward Jesus. And so my prayer is even as we try to get along as a church, even as we try to lead and be led in different ways, that even the failures there, even the setbacks, even the ways we step on each other's toes, we'll be able to step back as a church and say, you know what? We just need more of Jesus leading our church. It's only Christ who's the good shepherd. In the final analysis, every crown will be thrown at His feet. 
He will be King of kings and Lord of lords, and every knee will acknowledge it. Those who hate Him and those who love Him. So, brothers and sisters, let us fix our eyes on Christ, the Chief Shepherd. And in whatever role God has given you to lead, lead for His glory and in His direction. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for You. Thank You for laying down Your life for the sheep. Thank You that You are the Good Shepherd that we've all longed for. And Jesus, we just love You. We praise You. And we pray that we would follow You. I pray, Lord, for every leader here in whatever sphere of influence they possess, that, Jesus, they would, they would glorify You by leading in godly ways. I pray, Lord, for our church, that, that, we would, that leaders here would be godly and that we would uh, respect all that. And, Lord, we would function together in a life-giving kind of way. And, God, I pray for anyone here, Jesus, who doesn't know You, that they would see that You are what their hearts have longed for and that You are the way of salvation. You're not a philosophy or an idea or an organization, but Jesus, you are the Savior. So, Lord, we look to you, Jesus, for our our hope and our future. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.